Hi, my name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and History at Michigan State University, as well as a core faculty in the Critical Diversities in a Digital Age Initiative. I also serve on the Academics Committee for the Zoya Hurston Festival as one of the national planners for the event. I will be your host for this episode of Everyton's Got to Confess. The purpose of the podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zoya Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community, the Zora Festival has an educational aim. Since its founding, the festival has celebrated the life and work of Zora Hurston, commemorated the historic significance of Eatonville, Florida, and honored the global cultural contributions made by people of African ancestry. Every Time I Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussions about education, enterprise, institution, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that founded Eatonville and shaped its most famous daughter. This production is a joint project among the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community, Rollins College's Africa and African American Studies program, and the Department of History at the University of Central Florida. Public history graduate student Holly Baker recently sat down with Ambassador Harriet Elam Thomas at the University of Central Florida. Our conversation with Ambassador Elam Thomas highlights an underappreciated element of the Zorna Hurston Festival. The publication of Hurston's Barracoon puts a spotlight on Hurston as a thinker who championed recognition of Black cultural contributions to the United States. Hurston's refusal to change the language in the book signaled a Black scholar unwilling to compromise on valuing Blackness. For 30 years, the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community has championed this idea. One of its core tenets, honoring the global contributions made by people of African ancestry, has made it a destination for Black professionals that want to inspire a new generation of Black youth. In the interview, Ambassador Elam Thomas talks about her diplomatic career and discusses how African-American students can impact the global community through foreign relations. Listen to the conversation. Could you please introduce yourself for the audience? It is my pleasure to say my name is Harriet Elam Thomas. I'm named after Harriet Tubman, which you may or may not know. And because of that, I find it fascinating to tie in my name with her Underground Railroad because I feel I have established my own in terms of young diplomats here at this university. I was born in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and I'm the youngest of five siblings, all of whom have deceased. My brothers and sisters are 18, 19, and 20 years older than I. But they were like a set of parents in addition to my own parents. And it was thanks to them that I was able to have the kind of education that I wanted that was needed, actually, more so than what I wanted, because as a youngster, I had no clue what I wanted. But my parents were originally from the South. My mother was from Aiken, South Carolina. My father was from a place called Chase City, Virginia. My mother was a domestic, and I went with her to clean houses in the Boston suburbs. And that was a sobering and a leveling experience for this little kid who showed up in their lives 17 years after my closest sibling. Uh, Could you tell me about your life before your diplomatic career? How did you become interested in global affairs? As a youngster growing up in Boston, I really didn't have a very good sense of self. But when I was in Simmons College, 
I read, as students do now, the poster boards or the, the boards that tell you exchange experiences, what have you. So I was able to sign up for the experiment in international living at that time. It's now called World Forum or something like that. And it's, it's based in Brattleburg, Vermont, I believe. And I was accepted for that exchange program in my junior year in college, but I did not receive the scholarship, which meant I didn't have $1,200 to go overseas. And the dean of the School of Business at Simmons called and said, Miss Elam, are you going abroad this summer? I said, Dr. Baldwin, thank you for asking, but I was accepted, but I don't have the money. And within two weeks, he was back to me on the phone and said there was a group of Boston businessmen in international affairs who wanted to remain anonymous, would give me a 900 or or $1,000 scholarship, but I still had to raise $200. This is 1962. My dear brothers somehow raised $200, and off I went to Lyon, France. That's how I really became interested in living and working abroad. That family actually gave me a sense of self that I never had. Uh, I lived in a very small room with my French sister, and her mother taught the cello. Uh, so I was in the room with the piano and the cello. And I went to an event where someone said, the black one, how pretty she is. Now, I'm 18 or 19 years old. I swear I look like I just fell off the last boat because I didn't. What did you know about dressing or hair and makeup at 18? I was just one of the few students and the only one who was a student of color in the group of 10 that would be together all that summer. I never heard a comment that was so unsolicited. I said, there's something I like about being in France. Nobody's judging me based on the color of my skin, but rather about my ability to speak French, thanks to that French family. So that's what lit the spark in terms of my wanting to work and, and live abroad. When you got to France, you didn't speak French, but you Good learned question. it while there? I, I spoke French, I thought. I'd been taking French since I was 13 in junior, what was then called junior high school, it's called middle school now. And I um, thought I was pretty fluent, but I really wasn't. And it wasn't until one day when the French mother kept knocking on the door and I'd say, come in, and she never came in, then I realized, I guess I'm supposed to say, entrez, madame. And that was the beginning of a wonderful relationship because the French mother had much more patience with me teaching me French, grammatically correct French, than my French sister, with whom I've kept a relationship for 54 years. That's wonderful. She's still alive. I've been to see her, and she's come to see me. And... Istanbul, Turkey with her mother who was 81 and I could host them for a week taking them to museums and concerts and saying thank you for helping me become a career diplomat because they didn't realize they sp they really lit the spark and helped me feel that my place was going to be far more effective living and working abroad and trying to change stereotypes so I'll get to that in a question you're going to ask a little later. Um, could you tell me about your life in the US Foreign Service? I began as a secretary, even, I, even though I had a degree in international relations. It wasn't the fact that I was probably Negro then, and then black and Afro-American, Afro and then black American. In any case, uh, the fact that I was female was really a challenge. And all women were asked during recruiting sessions, and people came to colleges and universities as they do now, do you know how to type? So one of the chapters in my book is, do you know how to type? And Thanks to my mother insisting that I go to summer school and learn typing and shorthand, 
I could say yes to that question, so I spent three years working at the American Embassy in Paris, France, in the political section, typing cables and bored to tears, and said to myself, bored in the office, I loved Paris. Um, so I said, I think my parents have made this sacrifice for me to do something other than type all day. No offense, because we need people who can type, although everyone now knows how to use a keyboard. I thought that maybe I should return to the United States and pursue a career where I could use the training I got in school in international relations. So I came back to the U.S. after three years and was going to work at the Ford Foundation. And while I was preparing for that interview in New York, I received a call from Senator Edward Brooke, who was the first black senator since Reconstruction in Massachusetts, who said, Harriet, might you like to work in the White House? Well, I said, that would be fascinating. So I spent two and a half years in the Nixon administration. I left before Watergate, and I got to meet heads of state of every country in the world because many came to Eisenhower's funeral. And Trudeau's father stood in front of me in his fluent French, and we chatted. General de Gaulle stood in front of my desk because my desk was between the Oval Office, to my left, and the Cabinet Room. Now, what more could you ask? 28 years old, 27, 28, and 29 I was, because I came back from Paris at that time, to have exposure to people from, of that importance. But I also was there with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and all the ones who went to jail with Watergate, Kissinger, etc. And I learned that no one should ever intimidate you. They were all human beings. And I learned also to have a sense of self at a very early age that was really needed. Um, but it helped me not to be in intimidated by anyone else I've met. And that was a positive experience. I had no social life because I worked 12 and 15 hours a day, stayed in the White House whenever there was a press conference because nothing was digitized. So ABC, CBS, and NBC would have to bring loads of wires and get into the Oval Office to set up for an interview and with the president, and you would never be able to leave until all of that equipment left. So I got to know the Secret Service and the wonderful ushers in the White House and how the place really functioned. I was very fortunate, and I thank Senator Brooke for that experience. Why is it important for American students to learn about foreign relations? Well, whether we work or study in the United States or abroad, we are surrounded by different cultures. So therefore, we need to be sensitive to and adapt to verse cultural norms. When I read Justice Sotom Sonia Sotomayor's autobiography, she talked about how Latino students were often really chastised because they never looked at the superior who was disciplining them in school because out of respect they were told to look down. And most professors of American descent thought that was being disrespectful so that the students would be punished even more because they would be looking down. That's only one tiny example that she gave that really resonated with me that we really need to be culturally sensitive. You go to a store and you see a lot of people in line. And if it's a family from Latin America, it's because families go grocery shopping. There's only one person who's going to pay for the food, and your line is going to move faster than you perceive it because you saw all these people standing in line. Or 
the way we grieve, the way we greet others is very different depending on the culture. And I became very sensitive to that in each of my assignments overseas, and they were very different places. I had a lot to learn. I thought it was pretty smart, but I really wasn't when it came to cultural sensitivity until I made several faux pas, which I can tell you about later. Why is it extra important for African American students to get involved in the diplomatic service, do you think? Well, we need to be uh, aware that the world sees very little of what America is really like on television or in the theater and movies. And that's even today, except for Black Panther, which I understand has had a resounding success around the world, because there are images of Africa that people never thought of. And while it's Hollywood at its best, it delivers a message in terms of family values, in terms of pride in who you are. You see young women in important roles in science and technology, as well as in being the equivalent of the Secret Service of the security force to protect Chala in the film. And I did a fun article on what U.S. foreign relations might be with a land of Wakanda shortly after I did the film that m many people enjoyed. But I have to say that if the only image of America is of the, the same way it is of the developing world, of strife and of poverty and, yes, many African-American males being beaten by police officers, all that's going to be in the news. Nobody's going to see anything very much about family values that are positive in the communities of color, be they black, be they Latino, be they Asian. And for that reason, there's been a strong emphasis on bringing diversity in the foreign affairs community so that we can indeed show that face of America that doesn't reach audiences on television or in films. That usually doesn't. Things are changing. But when you are relying on the distributors of uh, media around the world, they will buy the cheapest and the most obviously the most economical films and series. So 90210 was very popular, which shows women of absolutely no value other than their blonde hair, blue eyes, and bikini suits. So you're doing the same with women as well. You're stereotyping women and minorities. And that, I used to say, Dallas and Dynasty were the best propaganda against the United States in the 80s when I first served in Greece because the Russians and others would see this and say America has no family values. Everybody's jumping in bed with someone else and the streets of Texas must be paved with oil and gold. Sad, but unless you interact with someone face to face, you will have no idea what life is really like for someone who is not of what up to now has been cons considered the majority population. That will change, I understand, now in about five to ten years. The other is that we bring a different perspective in terms of the international discussion. I'm convinced that the Turks were happy that I was the senior public affairs person in Turkey at the embassy or at the consulate in Istanbul because I understood what it was like to be treated as a second-class citizen. They were, this is before Erdogan is now prime minister, but they wanted very much to be members of the European Union. And because they were Muslim, and it's really considered the European Union as a Christian club, they felt that that was the reason 
and not the human rights violations, which they were guilty of. And they thought that I could be far more sensitive to understanding their plight. And I do think that had some impact because I had relationships with Turks. I spoke Turkish, and so I was invited to their homes, and I was able to bring the most respected Turkish scholar and the most respected Jewish writer of the Christian Science Monitor to a dinner with our U.S. ambassador. It took two years for me to manage that, and I think that helped me. One of the reasons why I helped got promoted when I was in Turkey. We, as minorities, can also provide historical background on why certain groups of people in the United States react certain ways. Police, a call to the police is not the same for me as it would be for someone else who didn't look like me, because you're not sure what assumptions that person is going to bring. With all the training in the world, witness Starbucks. Now, I don't think they would have called if two young men, white men, were sitting there. But as a result, out of every evil comes some good. The training that has been started, I think other companies will follow through. And I hope we don't have similar experiences. But that's why it's important for young people of color to consider a career in foreign affairs. Could you tell me about your memoir, Diversifying Diplomacy? What's it about? Well, first, the full title is Diversifying Diplomacy, colon, My Journey from Roxbury to Dakar. No, no offense. Everyone does. This is the shorthand. But it's important to say Roxbury to Dakar as opposed to Boston. Even though Boston is the largest city, Roxbury was then the black enclave in Boston. And I grew up in Roxbury. And the book is actually a personal reflection on someone who came from humble beginnings. And yes, I know we hear that phrase very often. Everybody came from humble beginnings. I didn't have to survive the horrendous challenges which exist in today's society because gun violence wasn't present. There were, however, always subtle discriminatory actions that all of us who grew up in the civil rights era experienced. I can honestly say that I used those life experiences as lessons to never let other people define who I was. I also can tell you that I described my 15 years of being at this university at the end of the book. And as I said in my farewell call to Dr. Hitt about 10 days ago, I had no intention to remain in Florida. This is a state that is below the Mason-Dixon line. But thanks to the welcoming environment of UCF's Office of Global Perspectives and the vision of John Bercia, I found a perfect setting to share my knowledge and inspire young students who might want to become career diplomats. I'm happy to say that there have been six or seven. Uh, some are still in graduate school, having received Pickering and Wrangell fellowships. And this portion, as I said, is included in the very last part of my book. I encourage my students never to allow others to define who they are. For as, as Peggy Millen, who is one of the philosopher writers I like, often says, we never touch people so lightly that we do not leave a trace. Um, could you tell me about your involvement with the Zorno Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, and um, how does it align with your goals and passions? My dear late sister-in-law, Barbara Clark Elam, was a librarian in the city of Boston. And while her specialization was children's literature, she introduced me to Zora's work many years ago. 
In fact, she and my brother, Judge Harry Elam, attended one of the earliest Zora festivals and wrote to me about it when I was living abroad. Both of them are deceased now. And then when I saw a postal stamp when I was serving in Turkey in 1992, and I'm sure my sister-in-law probably sent me a letter with a Zora stamp on it because she wrote all the time. I became even more curious, and fortunately, when I moved to Orlando, I attended the festival and was truly inspired. And as you may know, uh, after the initial exposure to the festival, I served for two or three years on the planning board of the Zora Festival and had the great pleasure of listening to the historical perspective of Zora from the wonderful Dr. Richard Long of Emory University in Atlanta. I so enjoyed hearing him share his wisdom in meetings, and I can tell you his presence is sorely missed. But I'm even more delighted now that the, the festival has a genuine global focus, for we now know scholars from around the world are fascinated with Zora's work. There was a significant interest on the part of the Japanese academics in Zora. What this tells us that culture and literature have a universal impact. And we're very fortunate to have someone here right in Eatonville in the person of N.Y. Natiri, who discovered the wealth of Zora's life and work as she was a librarian and shared it with the world for almost 30 years. We shall be forever in N.Y. Natiri's debt. Definitely. Well, is there anything you would like to add before our interview concludes? Delighted to know that there is a podcast that will cover this subject and that there's genuine interest in the history of literature and the arts, not just at this university, but around the world. Because as a retired diplomat who spent most of her time as a cultural attache in my junior years, I learned that art, literature, and diplomacy are effective in diplomacy. It helps us understand the world. It bridges cultural gaps. No one needs an interpreter in order to understand a painting or listen to beautiful music. And even reading literature, whether it's in the original word or in a translation, it opens lines of communication. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. I wish you continued success with your other podcasts. Thanks for listening to Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with support from the UCF Department of History and the African African American Studies Program at Rollins College. Be sure to find the rest of the episodes by searching for us online and subscribing to us on iTunes. Yeah.